We're going to continue our series of messages that we've been on to prepare us for Easter. And we've been looking at the cross, the seven public statements that Jesus made as he hung on that cross, because they are really the seven greatest words of love that have ever been spoken. So far in this series, we've looked at this word of forgiveness down here in the front of the stage. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And then we looked at the word of assurance, where, where Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Last week, we looked at the word of love, when Jesus expressed his love by coming to earth for all of us. Well, today we're looking at this word, back here in the number seven, substitution. We're going to talk about how Jesus became our substitute. Now, as you know, our world is full of all kinds of substitutes. I mean, we've got substitute chocolate, but friends, carob is not chocolate. Amen? It'll never really taste like chocolate. But then we've got all these substitute sugars, which never taste like the real thing. We've got substitute beef, which is usually some kind of a soy burger that's not like in and out Amen? <laughs> We've got all these substitutes in life that just aren't the real things. But then there are times when a substitute is actually better than the real thing. There are times when a substitute teacher can be more engaging. A substitute coach can maybe be more inspiring. A substitute doctor can be more caring. Here's the bottom line. Jesus, who offered himself to become our substitute and to take our punishment for our sins on the cross, that we might be saved from the punishment that we deserve for our sins, is the greatest substitute of all time. Amen? He is the greatest substitute. And the reason he's the greatest substitute ever is because he's the real deal. Because he is God of all gods, Lord of all lords, King of all kings. Now, Jesus made his first three statements of love in the very first three hours that he hung on the cross. Between those hours of nine and noon. But then suddenly at noon, things changed. At noon during what's usually the brightest and hottest part of the day, the sky turned dark. Take a look at what it says in Matthew chapter 27. Look at this. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. So think about this. There's three hours of night in the middle of the day. God made it dark. And then it says, at about three o'clock, after three hours of darkness, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God makes it dark in the middle of the day. And I think it's kind of like he's laying a blanket over what's going on, trying to lay a dark blanket over the torture of Jesus on the cross. It's like God is saying, this is so bad. This is so evil. It's so terrible to watch as Jesus takes on the sins of the whole world upon his sinless 
body and life. As he offers his sinless body and life to pay the price required for sins to be forgiven. All by himself. I think God is saying, I'm going to darken this ugly, horrific moment as Jesus takes all of the evil sins of the world upon himself and offers himself to pay for them all, for all that he's created, once and for all. And it's in that moment, out of the darkness, Jesus now feeling all alone as God the Father turns his back on him, forsakes him, that Jesus screams out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we can understand Jesus saying from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. But now Jesus says to God, his Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you deserted me as I'm doing this, your will? Why have you deserted me? Jesus had to be feeling the sting of abandonment. There's nothing that hurts more than being abandoned. And at this point in Jesus' life, he's already been abandoned by Judas. Many of the crowds that had been following him. Now most of his disciples had abandoned him. And after six hours on the cross, he's now being abandoned by God the Father. And he says, why have you forsaken me? Folks, I want you to understand this morning that the price that Jesus paid on the cross for you to be able to inherit heaven was not cheap. Not cheap. The price he paid broke his relationship for those moments between him and the Father. God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus had never experienced a strained or broken relationship with the Father. They've always existed as one. And yet at this moment, as he takes on the sins of the world on his shoulders, when he chooses to become the only acceptable sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world, the Father turns away. And it's in that moment that Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? The question is, what happened on the cross? What really happened on the cross as Jesus was hanging there? Write this down. Jesus became our substitute. That was what was happening. He was stepping in for you and me. He was willing to die. He was willing to even be forsaken by the Father so that you would not have to be forsaken eternally. And all of God's people said, amen. He was stepping in for you. He was taking your place on the cross. He was taking on himself the punishment that you and I deserve. He was substituting his life for your life. You were assigned to show up and pay for your sins, but he showed up and laid down in your place on the cross. He paid for everything you've ever done wrong once for all. You see, somebody has to pay for sins committed. Jesus so loves you that he chose 
to pay for those sins for you. The Bible says this, he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So listen close. Maybe you never thought about this. If somebody dies and goes to hell, their sins have already been paid for by Jesus. Jesus paid for their sins. But they just decided to reject his grace, reject his gift of salvation. But Jesus paid for everybody's sins. The Bible says this, God took the sinless Christ, Jesus, who had never done anything wrong, and poured into him our sins. That means all the things that we've ever done wrong, every lie we've ever told, every lust we've ever had, every way we've ever cheated, every way we've done wrong, he poured into the sinless Jesus. Then the Bible says, then in exchange... He poured God's goodness into us. Jesus is your substitute. But here's the thing. If you don't let Jesus be your substitute, you will pay for your sins. Through eternal death and eternal separation from God. You will miss heaven and spend eternity in hell. Those who reject Jesus and live like hell will get to live in hell. That's the easiest way to say it. Even though he paid for everybody's sins once and for all. So what happens on the cross? First of all, Jesus became our substitute. But what does the cross teach us? Write this down. First, it teaches us that God is holy. The entire Bible teaches us that God is holy. When the Son of Man comes back and takes his church to be in heaven... The Bible says we'll all be singing and giving worship to him. And the book of Revelation says that heaven sings, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, in Greek and Roman mythology, the gods they worshipped were Zeus and Jupiter and Apollo and Mars and, and Venus. And every one of their gods had, had sinful human frailties. Their gods were full of lust and jealousy and anger. They sinned and they were inconsistent and unreliable and imperfect. But listen, the real God, the one and only true God that you and I serve, the God who created the universe is 100% pure, unpolluted by evil. He alone is holy. He alone is perfect. And because God is 100% holy, he cannot be near evil and sin. Habakkuk says this about God. God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. That's why there's no sin in heaven. God is holy. He won't allow sin to be in his holy heaven. So here's what's happening on the cross. Jesus is not only suffering physically, but he's taking on the guilt and shame of every murder, every rape, every molestation, every lie, every sin ever committed and that ever would be committed. And thus being holy, that was spiritual and mental and emotional torture for holy Jesus, God who came to earth in the flesh. Now, we often think about the physical punishment and torture that Jesus was going on the cross, and we can kind of understand how painful that must have been physically, 
But can you imagine holy God on earth in the flesh now being 100% pure, taking in himself all evil? And then can you imagine God the Father who can't stand to look upon sin, turning his back on Jesus? He's always been one with his son. They've always been in unity. But now at this moment on the cross, he cannot bear to look upon the evil. But Jesus so loves you that he chose to spare you from eternal death, to spare you from separation from the Father by paying for your sin. And so he endured the torture of the cross, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental. He endured the cross. So the cross teaches us that God is holy. It teaches us that then, write this down, sin is ugly. Now, a lot of people don't think sin's so ugly. A lot of people in our culture think sin is funny and kind of fun and kind of satisfying. And that's exactly Satan's strategy. His strategy is to get you to not take sin seriously. His strategy is to get you to laugh at sin in movies, to make light of sin in life, to make sin look attractive and appealing, having no negative consequences. I mean, look at every James Bond movie. He goes to bed with five or six women in every movie. He moves from one woman to one woman to the next woman. And he, they show the romantic part. They show the fun part. But they never show the woman's broken heart part, do they? The negative consequences part. In a typical TV show, you see people drinking together after work. You see them having a great time, but it never shows about the guy who drinks too much and he goes home and beats his wife. It never shows the negative consequences of sin. You see, sin is not funny. Sin is ugly and it does three things to you. Write this down. First of all, it separates you. Sin always separates you from God. It distances you in your relationship with God. The Bible says your evil has separated you from your God and your sins have caused him to turn away from you. And then look at this, so that he does not hear you. A lot of times we like to go about our own merry way and participate in some maybe personal, private, pet sins. But did you know when you do that, God does not hear you. Do you want God to always hear you? If you participate in sin, God does not hear you. Because God is holy. And sin puts distance between you and him. It separates you from your God. Now, God's full of grace, amen? <laughs> and if we confess our sin and repent of our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sin. We're thankful for that. But sin separates you. Secondly, it distresses you. Sin causes enormous amounts of emotional stress and regret and remorse and shame and guilt. It leads to something greater than just normal stress. It puts you in a place of distress. David the psalmist experienced this and he writes this, my guilt has overwhelmed me. It's a burden too heavy to bear. When you live in a way that you know in your heart is wrong, it causes stress in your life. When you live in a way that you were not designed to live by your creator, it causes conflict between you and your creator. Sin distresses you. Next, it condemns you. When you go against God's holy ways, when you violate the conscience that God has placed inside of you, you know that you are wrong. 
You feel wrong. You feel condemned. You feel ashamed. You then begin to beat yourself up for doing wrong. The psalmist says, God is a righteous judge and always condemns the wicked. He is righteous. He's a holy judge. He always does what's right. He always does holiness in every situation. And that means he condemns and convicts and sentences those in sin. You say, well, yeah, Pastor, but isn't God a God of love? Yes, he's a God of love. But he's also our holy God who hates evil, who condemns the actions of those who do sinful, wicked things. God so loves the world that he hates what sin does to the world. He hates what sin does to the people of the world. And that's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's going to be condemned by God. The sinful will be separated from God. But then he says, but the gift of God is eternal life. In who? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, we should die and we should all forfeit heaven because of our sins. But Jesus died for our sins so that he could give us the gift of life instead. And all of God's church said, amen. He gave us the gift of life instead. So the cross teaches us that God is holy. Sin is ugly. And then that salvation is costly. Write that down. It's costly. Now you can have your sins forgiven. You can get a free ticket to heaven. But listen, Jesus had to pay with his life to make your salvation and my salvation possible. He loves you that much. Now your salvation is the most expensive gift you will ever be given. Jesus endured the torture of the cross to give you salvation. The Bible says this, God the Father sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We're made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. We're made right with God when we believe that Jesus is our substitute. Two friends went through law school together. Best friends. But after graduation, they both took different paths. One became a respected judge. The other became a drug dealer. One day, the drug dealer was arrested and ended up in his friend's court. And everybody wondered, because they knew they were friends, if, if the judge would be lenient on his friend. Then the judge did two things. First, thinking of all the lives that he ruined through dealing drugs, he levied the heaviest fine allowed by law on his friend. Justice demanded it. Second, stepping from behind his desk, he took off his judicial robe and paid his friend's fine. Justice and mercy were satisfied at the same time. And that's what God the Father and God the Son did for you and me on the cross. Justice and mercy satisfied at the same time. The Bible says Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. 
So the cross teaches that God is holy, sin is ugly, and that sin is costly. So what should be our response? What should be your response? What should be my response? Write this down. We should rely on Jesus to save us. Amen? We should decide today to turn from all of our sinful actions and to trust Jesus to save us. There's not a snowball's chance in health that you and I can get into heaven through any other way than Jesus Christ. Amen? He's the way. And the Bible says we are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ. Not when we go to church, not when we try to be good people. That's all included, but when we trust in Christ to take away our sins. We can all be saved in the same way, no matter who we are or what we've done. Boy, I need that verse to be in the Bible, amen? No matter who we are or what we've done. But the Bible says if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice remains for our sins is left. That means if you choose to reject the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, there's no hope for you. There's no hope of heaven for you. Rely on Jesus to save you, on Jesus to cleanse you, on Jesus to wash you and to give you the power to stop sinning and to to truly turn away and repent of all sins. Next, we should rejoice over what Jesus has done for us. We should live our lives rejoicing over the gift that Jesus gave us on the cross. Every morning, do you rejoice? Every time you go to a C group together with all the other disciples of Jesus, do you rejoice in what he's done? Every Sunday when we come to worship together with all the other disciples of Jesus, do you come rejoicing? We should. I mean, we should be rattling these walls with our songs of praise, amen? Not barely mouthing the words, but deeply from deep within our hearts, rejoicing in what God has done for us. Lifting our hands and clapping our hands and rejoicing for what he's done for us. The Bible says this. Now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God. All because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in making us friends of God. Next, we should remember what Jesus did for us. Every time we're tempted to turn away from Jesus and sin again, We should remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that he became our substitute, that he stepped in and took our place. He took our punishment. The Bible says this, God paid a ransom. He paid a price to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless spotless Lamb of God. When you're tempted, remember what your sin cost Jesus, your Savior, his own life, and the pain of a sinless God taking upon himself your sins. Last, we should then retell what Jesus did for us. Folks, that's why we started Canyon Hills nearly 26 years ago. The purpose this church was started was to tell more people the story 
of the great love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's why we do small groups. It's to retell the story over and over and over every week because sometimes we forget really easily, amen? That's why, that's why we do worship services. That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we go to the Philippines. That's why we go to Mexico. That's why we go to Long Beach. That, that's why we, we give outside ourselves to start new churches like we did this last May. That's why we send kids to camp. That's why we expand our facilities like the upcoming park so that we can expand more activities to break down barriers that people have between themselves and what they think church and what they think God is so we can better build relationships so we can tell more people who don't yet know about the one who died and the one who can give them the gift of life. That's why we do everything we do is to tell and retell the story of what Jesus did for us. He died for everybody and he wants everybody to know it. So how can we stop doing all that we can do to better tell the story? I mean, who should we leave out? Who should we decide, well, they're not worth telling the story to? So we won't give or we won't go or we won't. Who do we leave out? We can't leave out anybody. Jesus died for everybody. The Bible says this, God is patient for your sake. He doesn't want to destroy anyone, but wants all people to have an opportunity to turn to him and to change the way they think and act. Jesus died for everybody, but everybody must turn to him and place their trust in him to save them, to receive forgiveness and the gift of life from him. Folks, we've got to just be a church, a body of Christ that keeps telling and retelling the story. So we're going to keep starting more churches. We're going to keep expanding our ministries so we can tell more about Jesus. We, we'll do everything we can to tell others about Jesus and how he became our substitute. Amen? Amen. Amen. He died so that we can live. Would you bow your heads with me? Question I want to ask is this. Have you really placed your trust in Jesus to be your substitute and to save you from the penalty you deserve for your sins? I'm not talking about just coming to church. I'm not talking about doing some good things for God. I'm not even talking about going on serve trips. But have you, in the depths of your soul, surrendered to Jesus and asked him to be your substitute and made it your life's goal and mission to follow him? The question is, have you decided to turn from your sins and to truly follow him? To be his disciple. Follow him and his ways. If you've not yet done that, or if you've done that, but yet you've fallen away from that, would you pray this prayer in your heart? And I mean, would you really mean it like you've never meant it before? As I pray it, pray it in your heart. Father God, you know my heart. You know my sins. I confess that I have sinned and that I need your forgiveness. 
I place my trust in you today as my substitute. From now on, I will follow you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Come live inside of me. By faith, I receive your gift of forgiveness and life eternal. Now, if you prayed that prayer, would you confess it to me and would you confess it to God the Father? Just lift your hand. I want you to know I prayed that prayer. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. Just lift it up and put it down. Awesome. Good. Good. Father, we don't want to just kind of follow some Christian tradition. We want to follow your ways. Lord Jesus, we want to imitate you. We want to have an intimate day-by-day relationship with you. You in us, working through us, helping us be all that you've created us to be. May you be honored and glorified in each one of us and in this church. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing a song as we close.